Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, I am wishing you the best in your life. You've tuned in once again to be with Denise Cooper on Closing the Gap, the place where we really talk to people who have been there, done that, and are willing to share their wisdom on how you can make your dream, turn your dreams into a reality, and what's the process in between. As you know, I often say the acquisition of knowledge does not mean that you have the ability to apply that knowledge. And if you really want to get, become successful, if you really want to have the life that you want, you really want the career and to be the kind of leader who really influences people from your heart, then you have to focus on how the impact of what you do is affecting other individuals. Today, and I know I say it every week, I have the privilege of talking to someone, Miss. Sabrina Horn, and she wrote a book that just captured my attention, and it's called Leading with Authenticity for Real Business Success, but that's the back end of it. What captured my attention was the beginning. Make it, don't fake it. How many times have we gotten that advice that if you're uncomfortable, if you don't think you know, if you're unsure of yourself, somebody just says, fake it till you make it. But is that really what we need to do? And if we do fake it till we're making it, first of all, how do we know when we made it? The other is, is what's the consequences? What's the impact of us actually faking it, acting like we know all the answers, acting like we, we're better than other people? Because if we are not faking it, then we're vulnerable and we're willing to invite other individuals into our lives, into our businesses, and we want to know what exactly they think about. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Sabrina. She's an award-winning CEO, C-suite advisor, and communications expert, and of course, an author. With only $500 and five years of work experience, she founded Horn Group, a public relations firm that for a quarter of a century advised thousands of executives and their companies from the hottest startups to Fortune 500s. She is one of a few female CEOs in Silicon Valley in the early 1990s. So imagine what we've talked about in, the, in this year, 2020. But she was a pioneer and has always aimed to exemplify authenticity and advise her clients on its merits. She's written for publications including the Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, and CMO Magazine. With that, let me welcome Sabrina. Mm -hmm. How are you today? I'm great. It's so great to be on this with you, Denise, to be on your show, your program and, and talking to, you know, your people. I'm just uh, thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And let me tell you, we are excited to hear <laughs> your journey. So let's start there. Tell us about yourself. What's your story? And in particular, there was a time in the 1990s when you started your business where you were not known. Yeah. And you had to deal with people who probably 
thought it was weird. <laughs> yeah, crazy, even. Uh, crazy, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't, you know, the, the way we worked in Silicon Valley at the time to allow women to be advisors to hot startups and CEOs. So talk about what made you start the business and what's been your journey? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. You know, I think a good place to start is the inspiration that I had to think that maybe I could try my hand at it and hang out my own shingle. I'm the only child of German immigrants who, you know, had a really strong survival instinct when they came to this country and they were both entrepreneurs. And so I think I had that kind of in my DNA, you know, it was instilled in me that you can't count on anybody in life, but yourself ultimately, and that there is no free lunch in life and that you have to make your own luck and infused with that. I, I always think I, you know, I thought maybe someday I can do this or do that, but I, I loved the business of communications because Mm -hmm. communications in my, my humble opinion, you know, makes the world go round and it simplifies the complex. It, makes change okay for people. And there is nothing more disruptive than, than technology, right? And, yes. and so I, I wanted to tackle that and I felt it was a heady responsibility to be able to distill in layman's terms, the problems that really complicated technologies can solve for consumers, for other businesses and, you know, and, and across different industries. And so I think I, I knew just enough to be dangerous. I mean, I literally <laughs> had about four years of job experience, no leadership training, no management training, but, I, but I knew how to to do public relations for a startup. I knew about technology and this wave of companies that was coming down the pike for the PC revolution when the PC was brand new and and the 1990s. And I I thought that, you know, maybe I could do this public relations, this communications in a different way. And back then PR was very tactical. It was a little marketing function. It was all publicity really. Mm -hmm. And, and I felt like, you know, wow, I, I really think that communications is a, is a huge arrow in a, in a CEO's quiver. And, you know, when you do it badly, we, we know what the side effects of that are. Oh, and has it not gotten exponentially worse <laughs> yeah. these days, right? So, I mean, that, that's the short version. I mean, I, I knew a few people. I met a nice client that they, I wrote a press release for them while I was working for somebody else. And I got the idea. I wrote a business plan and they asked me if I would come and share my ideas. So I took the day off from work and, and I did. And by the time I got home, I had won the, the business. So that, but be careful what you wish for, because while I knew how to, to do public relations, I did not know how to run a company or grow mm-hmm. a business. And very quickly, I learned that, you know, I had to learn those other skills or bring them on board and hire a team to help me. Mm-hmm. So today we have lots and lots of fast growing tech companies out in Silicon Valley and all over the world. I mean, it's not just here, but people are really saying, you know what, I I don't like to play by the rules that everybody has set. And so, you know, the press has dubbed it as the great resignation. Yes. What are some of the things that if you were advising someone who was starting out and saying, you know what, I don't want to play by the rules anymore. What would you tell them? As uh, another leader of of a business? Yeah. I mean... I would say, boy, you've got to really think things through before you get started. And 
you've got to figure out first and foremost, what your core values are. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people think, oh, that's just, you know, a bunch of hooey and, you know, put a bunch of words up on a poster and <laughs> on the front door and, and you'll be done with your mission statement or whatever. But I'll tell you the power of having a set of core values, they infuse your culture, how your people treat each other, what you celebrate, what you tolerate, what you don't tolerate and behaviors. And it also infuses your business processes, everything from how you do customer service to how you respond to a customer complaint Mm -hmm. and resolve it to quality and manufacturing or in service delivery, everything. And if you really think about that and make it so visceral inside your business, right, Mm -hmm. that can create a very strong brand. That's the halo effect, right? Mm -hmm. Of, Mm -hmm. Of having a strong brand. Now, in terms of the great resignation, you know, I think people really want to belong. They want to feel that they can identify with a company that shares their values. Mm-hmm. So another reason to be very, very demonstrative and communicative about what you stand for. And that's not something that you can just make up. It has to be authentic to mm-hmm. use the subtitle of the, of the book. You know, right. you can't just strap that on and, and like people will see through it and you, it's not sustainable if it's not you. So that, and by extension, being a humble leader and, and humble does not mean being self-deprecating or not being strong or resilient. Being humble means owning up to mistakes when you've made them, being a learning organization and helping other people do their jobs better, Mm -hmm. right? And serve in a way, serving, right? Your employees. You said this earlier when we were chatting to get acquainted, like your employees are are also your customer. Mm -hmm. And in a service business, that, that is so it begins and ends with your employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that humility and the empathy, the ability to listen, right? You can listen to your people, help them get through a tough time and still make your number. Yeah. You can. It is possible. Yeah. This is an interesting place to be at right now. So as we talked about before, the resignation, a great resignation is really coming from the fact that we've been given a gift of sitting and stepping back for 18 months, being quarantined, the entire world has, and really looking to see, you know, if I get out of this, what do I want for my life? Right. And I think it's interesting what you said that part of what people want is to belong. Yeah. But I also think it has something to do with this idea of telling the truth. What drew me to your book was this make it, don't fake it idea. What have you seen that would cause you, I mean, to, you know, titles are very personal. Mm -hmm. What made you come up with that particular title? Yeah, you know, I being in PR, right? You hear so many people saying, oh, just whip that up or, you know, put your spin on it, Sabrina, or, you know, make us look big. (laughs) You know, the truth of the matter is that that PR is not about spin at all. It's about really understanding the truth and getting to the truth, making sense of it, and then finding a path forward, right? Because in Silicon Valley, right, as a young female executive with no business really leadership experience, I made a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to have all the answers. And so I would just make shit up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, and of course I saw a lot of fakery too, right? A lot of entrepreneurs who 
exaggerate the truth to win the venture capitalist over, or, you know, people lie on their resume to get the job interview. But what I learned painfully sometimes, and by advising my clients was that, right, the truth always comes out. Mm-hmm. The investor will check on your technology and, and look under the hood. The employer will check your references and find out that, you know, gosh, you didn't go to Harvard. And so it does, it serves you no purpose to, to fake it. And faking it can be a broad range, right? It can span from a little white lie, you know, you want to impress your first date, mm-hmm. you know, that you're a four-star chef when you can barely boil water. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, to some of the examples I, I just gave to faking it can also be avoiding reality, sticking your head in the sand and procrastinating, right? And you're faking it because you're not dealing with reality. And then we can go off the charts, you know, to like jail time, (laughs) fraud and and deception. But but I think most people live kind of are facing and making decisions all through that. It's funny, you talked about resumes, studies and reports are that 40% of people actually just outright lie on their resume. Another 38% embellish. Yep. <laughs> what they're doing. And a third of all of those embellishments or lies are really around saying I did stuff that I didn't do. Yep. Kind of thing. What drives people to mm-hmm. feel like they have to present themselves in a different light? I mean, is this something that's happening? I mean, people can blame the media. I mean, right now we have some issues around what are real facts. Yeah. And do facts matter? But in your opinion, having done this for a while, what is your thought on this? What causes people to fake it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be feeling insecure, having imposter syndrome and feeling like you're undeserving of the success you've achieved. It can be just feeling overwhelmed. You can feel under pressure. If you're an executive, right? I don't know too many executives who relish the idea of having to do a layoff because they didn't make their number Mm -hmm. or having to do a product recall because of manufacturing mistake. And, you know, the tendency is to not be transparent about those things sometimes. And mm-hmm. right. The, the reason why people fake it is because dealing with reality and the truth is often very hard right? mm-hmm. the, truth, the truth hurts. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to take the shortcut and fake it, look the other way or just spin it this way and, and kind of hope that, you know, you can get away with it. Right. And then, and then you do it some more and then you do it some more and then it sort of it can consume you. Mm-hmm. And what do we know? Lies beget lies. Right. And we've seen some examples currently with Elizabeth Holmes and, and the Theranos trial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so in that moment, right, there's, I didn't write about this in the book, but I'm writing a post about it now about that fake it moment, right? It's that singular nanosecond where you don't know what to do, but you, you just need to do something. And so you lie. Mm -hmm. And that is the fake it moment where you, you have a, you have a decision to make about saying, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to get back to you. Or that's really interesting. Tell me more. I want to learn more about that before I before I decide what I'm going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why can't we just do that? Instead, we're, you know, we just blurt something out there that, that we regret later and, or get exposed for. I think part of it, at least in my work, what I find is, is that the old way in which we call a leader, you know, the person who, if you're a real leader, you have to have all the answers. 
if you're a real leader, you know, you can't make mistakes Yeah. or you come in and rescue us from the mistakes that we've made. And so we put a lot of, a lot of the, the slogans and the jargons and the way we teach leadership really is both covertly and, you know, silently Mm -hmm. is that you can't make mistakes. And yet on the other side, we know that when you are vulnerable, when you can ask for help, when you can engage other people in the thought process and the solutions, you actually come up with better answers. Absolutely. But the system by which we judge people in many companies, the performance management, the feedback process really focus people on what's going wrong instead of how do we build on what's right? Yes. I agree a thousand percent. And No, I think that humility is such an underrated superpower of leadership Mm -hmm. and to have that confidence, right? It actually shows confidence to admit that you made a mistake, you know, or, or just to say like, wow, well, that, that pitch just did not go well. And I, you know, let, let's do a postmortem, something I recommended in my book and show people how to to do it, Mm -hmm. not, not to point fingers, right. In that old leadership style, right. But to start and go around the room and talk about where it went off the rails and, and you, you, the leader should go first, right? Talk about what you could have done better. And then at the end of that, you come up with some things, you have to institute them. You have to change the way you're operating. Otherwise the meeting was pointless, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that kind of approach, it draws people in and it, it stops this culture of CYA and this very autocratic top-down kind of culture. And it just flattens it out, but it takes time to realize that you actually can, can do that. Right. And also I want to say, there's no way you can have all the answers. A leader is expected to lead. And that means to provide direction and a path. And yes, it means having some answers. Yeah. For the privilege of being a leader, you, you know, that's your job, but you got to find them. You've got, you can't have all the answers from, you know, here to eternity and back. Sometimes success is just maybe getting, getting to tomorrow and that's okay. The rest of it will unfold, you know, in, in real time. Wow. You just said so much. And I'm not even sure where to start to unpack, unpack what you just said out of this. And one of them is, you know, you talked about the having the listening sessions or the postmortem sessions. And then from that, if you don't do something with that information, actually change your behavior going forward, then the meeting is pointless. And I see that happening all the time. And my, those who listen to me on a regular basis know how I feel about the listening sessions we're having around diversity, equity, and inclusion because, and employee engagement. Because what happens is, is we listen, we listen, we listen, but we don't change our behavior. Right. And that feels to me like such a betrayal of my trust as an employee. When you've heard what I had to say, we've done the postmortem. We've said we could be better. We're going to do these things. And then you turn back. But the other thing I would love you to comment on is you mentioned that it takes a long time for us to kind of get to this point where we can have humility and whatnot. And I've always thought that it's a decision. Yes. And decisions don't take a long time. Implementation might take a little bit. Yes. But the decision itself doesn't take a long time. What have you counseled people or talked to people or what have you learned even in your own life that helps 
you kind of, once you make the decision that you're not going to fake it, that you're really going to bring authenticity to your business, what are some things that help keep people on that path and they don't revert back? Yeah. So I think it starts with a commitment to integrity, Mm -hmm. right? It's really Mm -hmm. making that commitment. And I am shocked sometimes when I am asked by younger people in particular, why should honesty be the foundation of any business? Oh my goodness. Yes. And why is that so important? Because nothing is sustainable or will live long. No marriage, no relationship, no company. If it's not grounded in integrity and honesty. Absolutely. So there's a commitment, right, to that. And then I think it is building a leadership team that believes in that viscerally and a culture that supports it, right? And corrects the bad behavior when it pops up or, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody's perfect. You're going to make a bad hire. Well, those people should stick out like a sore thumb and self-select out or, or you need to help them find another place. Right. (laughs) And your business processes, right. Again, it's, it's about building a brand that provides a consistent customer and employee experience. Mm -hmm. And that is what is, it's all based on, on trust. Now, nobody is perfect and every leader makes mistakes and you will make mistakes. It's just, just we're human. Mm -hmm. And so when you do like, just have a moment with yourself, a quiet moment and say, okay, if I had a do-over, what caused me to fake it? How, how could I have done things differently, perhaps more difficultly, right? Because faking it can make things easy, can make the problem go away temporarily, mm-hmm. right? So how could I have done things differently? What's missing from this picture? Dialing into like the fear, sometimes we fake it because we're afraid. So you have to disarm the fear and organize the risk by getting information, by talking to mentors. These are the people who will give it to you straight, hopefully, and tell you yeah. what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, right? And, but it is, it is constantly having that sort of self-assessment, right? That conversation with yourself to say, you know, am I still achieving the goal? Am I doing it the right? Am I upholding my company's values? Are my customers proud to be my customers and my employees? Are they excited to come to work here? Right. And then, but you also have to listen, right? If, if you're getting negative feedback, I I wrote about this in the book that complaints are gifts and you know, they, they really are. If you're annoyed by them and don't pay attention to that, but that's the, your first mistake, right? You've got to listen to what people are telling you and figure out how you can navigate resolving that conflict. And bringing in other individuals to be able to do that, right? Because in, in a company, customer service, where you get complaints from that, it's usually not the failure of one person. No. There's a domino, right? Yeah, there's a domino and there's, you know, it's lurking somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the bottom of some barrel. And, you know, the, the worst situations are the ones that are hidden and you have to take the time to, that, that you may not have to peel back the onion and figure out what's really going, going on there and Mm -hmm. remove what is toxic and, Mm -hmm. you know, and fix things. So you're, you're right. It's usually not one person. It's, it's a whole process that involves a group of people. Yeah. Most leaders, I I also tell the executives, particularly when they're in that C-suite that it's unfortunate, but people don't like to admit when they're wrong or that things are going wrong. And so at best, 
you can have a rose colored glass in front of you in the communication process. What's worse is if it's opaque and you have no insight into what's really happening in your organization. Yeah. At the same time, when the, the boss, whoever that boss is, starts running around asking questions and kind of getting a picture of it, it does send some shockwaves through the organization. Have you seen, you know, in your business, some of what you do is crisis management. Yes. You know, how are we going to handle the fact that something went wrong and Twitter's lighting up right now? Yeah. That you're a really bad company. How do you advise the CEO, first of all, to get over the shock that something went wrong? Mm-hmm. Second, how do they really discover what's going wrong? Because if it was a shock and there wasn't transparency in the organization, them kind of poking in is really going to send a shockwave into the organization. Yeah, it's a great subject, especially right now, because for all intent and purposes, we've been living in crisis mode for the last 18 months or so. It begins with crisis planning. The worst time to develop a crisis plan is when you're in a crisis. Mm-hmm. You're not prepared for the, sh- for the shock, right? And as a CEO, you do need to have some pretty good shock absorbers built into your into your makeup, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, stuff, stuff is going to fly and it's going to land on you and you have to deal with it. But I, I do, even for entrepreneurs of startups, you know, develop a straw man of a crisis plan. Imagine the unimaginable, an earthquake, another Hurricane Sandy, God forbid, or a yeah. global pandemic or a cybersecurity hack. You know, any of these things are unfortunately possible in the world we live in today. And to go through the process of identifying the crisis, doing the vulnerability assessment, which is how the crisis will affect your entire organization. What's the ripple effect, right? From supply chain to finance to where your people are, and then figuring out you know, how you would come up with the, the plan to deal with each one of these scenarios. Who would be the team who deal with it? Who is the spokesperson? And then developing a Q&A. What are the... the I call it having a 60 minutes episode with yourself. (laughs) It's like, what are the worst questions you don't want to get, right? Yeah. yeah. Say say it's a product flaw in your own product and you have to admit it, right? Yeah. What are the questions you're going to get from investors, from customers, employees, your business partners, right? Even your, you know, your CFO, what are you going to say to the guy or right? And, and then coming up with plausible answers to those questions, that's good crisis planning. And I think you have to, it's a humiliating exercise because, (laughs) because you have to, you, you'll find out like where things are actually maybe broken. And in the Mm -hmm. process of doing that, you may come up with processes that might prevent that crisis from occurring or might mitigate it. So there's a whole chapter in my book that talks a lot about facing the harsh truth of a crisis. Mm-hmm. That is not something you can fake, man. And we've all seen what, what happens when, you know, the Boeing Max aircraft disaster, for example. Yeah. yeah. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, you're going into the trough and you've got to figure out how to come out of that. Yeah. And how do you hold people, you know, keep people from just cracking and crumbling out of it? As you were explaining your plan, one of the things that that popped in my mind was going through the exercise. First of all, people will say, eh, and I've been in a company that basically said it'll never happen, but they had to write the book because the investors said, (laughs) you need a book, but they didn't do it from any, any heart and any meat. It was an exercise to go through it. 
So I've seen it on that side, but I've also seen it from the side where a smart company that I worked with did it to test people's thinking and their reaction mm-hmm. and to sharpen their ability to tell the truth in a, in a way that engaged people to believe that what they were telling them was the truth and to get and to get that connectedness in it. And so I bring that up because as you were describing it, I could hear that one company that was like, yeah, God, we got to go through this work. It doesn't matter. No, it it is. You may think it's busy work, but boy, are you going to be so happy that you have that plan on your shelf that you could pull down and everybody's phone numbers and email addresses and, you know, that you know how to get in touch with people when you need them and that, you know, at least you don't, you may not know what you're going to do the day after tomorrow. You know, no plan is going to be written for whatever, you know, but but it's a blueprint from which you can at least operate for the first 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. And, And that is the most critical time when a crisis is unfolding, right? Sometimes it is unfolded for you. And then you're going to have to react. Well, wouldn't you rather have that arrow in your quiver? Yeah. And sometimes you, you find out about a terrible crisis within your organization and you have to disclose it. And then you, you have maybe more time to prepare. Mm-hmm. But the point is, you know, and having been a, a crisis counselor for my clients, but also having weathered several crises in my own company. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, I... I would have led with so much more confidence and resilience and it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, you know, what's that saying, taken a pound of flesh, you know, mm-hmm. from me, I could have gone home and, and still had a conversation with my kids over dinner rather than being completely distracted and consumed by this horrible thing that I had to deal with. Right. Right. So, you know, I think there's tremendous merits to preparation. Yeah. And I, I just also think that You know, as lean as many companies are running right now, they're bailing water so fast that preparation becomes a secondary or tertiary, third, fourth, fifth thing that they can wind up doing at all. And and I think that's one of the sad things about running as lean as many companies are running right now is that there is no room in the structure itself to absorb these shocks that if you're in business long enough, they're going to come. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. times are going to change. That storm is going to hit this whole idea of the supply chain now and yeah. how, how mm-hmm. disrupted it is because of the pandemic and the, and people just saying, you know what, I'm giving it up. Yeah. It has changed expectations. Mm-hmm. And one of the expect, one of the things that I've noticed in companies is this is a story I've been telling lately. I needed to make some handouts and get ready for a training session. And before the pandemic, I just went online, went to my favorite printer, sent it in. And within a couple hours, everything was done. This time, the sign said three to five days to get done. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I had enough of a relationship with that person that I could <laughs> go in and say, hey, look, I didn't know it was going to take three to five days. And he told me the story of how he didn't have people, he didn't have supplies, because the supply chains were just torn up. Well, long story short, it took me four hours to get done what normally takes me an hour and a half to two hours. Mm -hmm. How many hidden processes are being affected? And and when I say hidden, you know, you don't know everything somebody does. You're given an assignment, they run off, they go do it, and suddenly it comes back and it's done, right? right? But how much more effort did that person have to do 
to get those assignments done. And yet that's the kind of language, that's the kind of information that in organizations doesn't come up to the CEO. And ultimately, I guess in a strange way, we're all kind of faking it like we're all okay and everything's like it was before and hoping that we can just get through. Yeah, you know, I just think that that's wishful thinking. Like it's it's not going to be the same. There will be elements of going back to work and being in an office that will be the same for some people who want it and not for others who don't want it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the new it's the new reality of the world we work in now. So much is is being talked about this, and we're kind of talking about it here. I subscribe to this notion of change planning. Contingency planning is another word, but Mm -hmm. change planning on steroids. You know, you, you've got to think through little things like what you just said that, you know, you can't get the product out because this one link in the supply chain takes too long because these parts aren't being made anymore because their suppliers are delayed and there's ships that aren't shipping and there's forest fires that are killing the tree, you know, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause it's all going to, it's going to run downstream sooner or later. Yes, exactly. And so as a leader that is going to cross your desk and you, you know, it, it can have a material impact on one part of your business and yeah. you're going to have to come up with these, I call them change plans there. And they're all like little mini crisis plans, right? What happened? Why did it happen? What's the fix, right? And then what's the time frame? and how do we move forward? And then you can't just set it and forget it because mm-hmm. the thing is, right, that reality is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And the strategy for today may not be the strategy that you need to use for tomorrow. So that's why I say like, it's you're constantly making new plans and revising plans. You can't, it's like living with a moving target. And that yeah as a leader is incredibly exhausting physically and emotionally and mentally exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it can't just be a job for one person, right? You need a leadership team who's going to help you navigate through that. It's the, it's the world we live in at the moment and it will get better. It's better today than it was three months ago. And three months from now, it'll be better than today. right? Right. But but no rest for the, for the weary, I, I suppose. And, you know, I, I want to say that self-care is super important. Look, I, I was during the recession, I think 2008 and 2009, I think we were in crisis mode for two years. Yeah, at least. And it took a toll. It took its toll on me. And, you know, I, I was always putting out a fire or solving some problem. And I never... I didn't have time to take care of myself mm-hmm. because I was on autopilot. I'm just running from one problem to the next, right? That's my job. And boy, you can really hurt yourself there. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take time out to, to meditate, to find moments of balance during the day. You know, I'm not talking bottles of Pinot Grigio and Advil PM. (laughs) Although I I can see quite a few CEOs (laughs) and executives and directors and whatnot. That's exactly what their (laughs) self-care plan looks like, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's part of your crisis plan there, but you know, but that has to be the the exception to the rule, not the rule. So I I just want to make that point that self-care is really important right now. Oh, good, good. I think you're right. And I think we're just now learning how to prioritize that. Mm. 
I think you're right. And when we had the financial meltdown in, you know, 2006, seven and eight, we really didn't think about health, mental health care yes. for people and how it was taking a toll on people at that time, particularly the number of people who lost their jobs in the financial services industries and, and real estate, et cetera. I don't think we took into consideration what that looked like. And this time around, I believe that people are finally stepping back and saying, wait a minute, this is just not the way I want to live. Yeah. Don't, yeah. They may not know how to get through it. And I, I think you're right with the meditation, you know, prioritization. Yes. yes. Really knowing, going back to what you started saying in the beginning, what are my values? Yes, exactly. Like mental wellness, use whatever word you want, you know, culture, people care, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's about taking care of your employees and letting them know that their wellness is important to you and Mm -hmm. to your company. Mm -hmm. And you can offer all sorts of programs and benefits and blah, 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 like you should. Right. But in a way that's, that's the easy part. It's, it's how you uphold that, how you talk to other people about it. It's the expression of empathy and listening and not just the CEO, but all managers, right? So that it's, it's not like, oh, it's only a couple people who say that at the top or, you know, over here and it's basically bullshit, right? That's terrible. That can kill your company yeah, and your leadership. Because they watch your feet. You know, I say all the time, words are important, yes. but when I really want to know who you are, I watch what you do and how yes. you treat other people. And yes. if you don't treat yourself that way and you don't treat other people that way, then I have no expectation that you're going to treat me that way. Yeah. It's all, you know, then you're just, then you're just like every, every other boss, you know, that kind of does that and pulls a fast one. And those sorts of behaviors get exposed a lot faster these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? I think you're right. Ways are much less tolerant of this sort of behavior and feel much more empowered to be vocal about that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you may feel like it's all soft stuff and that, you know, yeah, we'll just say we offer this program and that'll take care of it. (laughs) That's not going to accomplish the goal. Like you you really have to, now is the time people to push the reset button. And if there, it was ever a time it's now to Mm -hmm. rethink your, I call them the three V's, your core values, your long-term vision, and your value proposition, are those things still all in alignment? You know, like maybe your customers don't really want what you still have to offer. Maybe they want something different. Maybe your vision, your long-term vision needs to to get a little polish on it, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe your core values, they've been there in the background, but you know, let's, let's give them some new meaning. Let's shift the priorities of these values perhaps a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a window of time to do that. And it's now. Yeah. I want to say, you know, I can't believe the time has moved on as fast as it can. Your book was fascinating. And I really recommend that people pick it up. And one of the things I liked about it was, is I could kind of go front, back, middle, middle, back, and kind of jump around a little bit. And there was nuggets in there that I could just pick up and go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Or it just made more sense about things that I'm struggling with when I'm talking to some of my clients who are caught up in this, what seems like a never ending crisis that we're in right now. 
How can people get a hold of you if they want to have another conversation or even bring you into their company just to talk about this stuff to the executive team or employees or new leaders? Yes, I am actually happily am, am giving quite a few leadership talks these days and counseling founders and CEOs of young companies. You can find me through my website, which is very simple. It's just sabrinahorn.com. And you can go to my book page, sabrinahorn.com forward slash book to order your copy, any style that you like it in audio, digital, or print, or of course we can, you can always go to our friends over at Amazon. <laughs> find it there. Make we it. have totally changed our life. <laughs> uh, well, especially during the pandemic, it was yeah. nice to have them around. Yeah. And yes, or you can just email me sabrina at sabrinahorn.com. And I'd be thrilled to talk with anyone. All right. Thank you so much for your time and all the wisdom that you gave to us. Again, you know, you've been listening to Denise Cooper with Closing Your Gap, a place where you can come and find real people talking about how they overcome the challenges of get, turning a dream into reality and getting over those moments of crisis mm-hmm. that often stump us, but also stop us. Until we meet again, I want to say thank you so much. And if you like this, Please share with your friends. If you didn't like it, share with your friends because I promise it will generate a conversation where you will discover new answers and a new way to close the gap. With that, see ya. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, If you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.